Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners, Lynn Kowick here. I'm honored to be the provost of Northern Seminary. I love how the mission of Northern is to equip church leaders to engage the world. The classes at Northern are full of rich discussion and practical learning. If you've ever considered advancing your theological or biblical education, seminary is a great option to explore. That's why I wanted to let you know about a special opportunity Northern Seminary is offering if you apply right now. We are offering a $50 Amazon gift card to everyone who applies and is accepted for the fall quarter. So now is the perfect time to apply. Go to seminary.edu backslash ajapply to schedule some time with our admission team or to start your application today. Again, that is seminary.edu backslash A-J-A-P-P-L-Y. Now sit back and get ready for today's episode. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This episode is part of a special series where we are talking with women who are students at Northern Seminary. My name is Serene Musselman. I'm a student at Northern, and today myself and Dr. Lynn Kohick are joined by Carrie Latticer. Carrie is a student in the Masters of New Testament program at Northern Seminary. She's also a pastor, founder of New Ground Network, where she has coached ministry leaders and pastors across the globe. She's a podcast host and a sought-after speaker. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here with you too. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So Carrie, you are the community pastor at the Naperville location of Community Christian Church here in Chicagoland. And you also speak extensively with churches and conferences like Exponential, Multiply Vineyard. But you haven't always been in vocational ministry. In fact, you started out in the business world and you were finding success at a young age. So tell us a bit about what changed and how did you discern a calling into ministry? Oh, yeah. Um, At the time I was in Florida where I grew up and was um, scaling a restaurant franchise, actually. We had opened the first one in Florida and had this contract to do multiple over the next few years. And this was before I really had a relationship with Jesus. And um, during that time, you know, it was a successful stint in the business world. I had a well-resourced journey of trying everything the world had to offer me that was going to like make me feel whole or complete success, shopping, partying, just all the things that come with that. And I turned up empty at the end of that. And so one Easter Sunday, I darkened the doors of a church across the street from where I lived. And that was the beginning of, that kind of changed everything on my journey. And so over time, it really shaped like, how should I run this business? You know, if everything should be yielded to Jesus. And we started doing some partnerships, uh, the restaurant that I was running with the local church, serving after hurricane disaster and doing relief work. And it was, honestly, it was wild because I had like, cooks who had been out partying all night, showing up kind of cussing and drinking and, you know, sweet, church ladies there, you know, it was like, a, whoa, what, what's happening here? But I didn't know any better at that time. Um, and some people at the restaurant got saved. It was really awesome experience to see them find their way back to God through that. And at that time, one day the executive pastor called me and wanted to meet. And I thought like I was in trouble 
and he said, <laughs> I know you've been building restaurants and I wonder if you have ever thought about building ministries, which wow. honestly that had never crossed my mind, but I left there thinking like, okay, this is interesting. My boyfriend at the time, who's my husband now said, you have to pray about this. And if God doesn't give you a vision for this ministry, you can't say yes. And if he does give you a vision for it, you can't say no. And so that's what I did. I went away and prayed. And that was the beginning of my journey in ministry, um, leading a middle school ministry, actually. Wow, that's awesome. And you were just teaching students, not middle school students, though, but high school students at a camp at Community Christian Church, right? How was that experience? Oh my gosh. It was, um, I mean, it's intense teaching high schoolers. I don't know if you've stood in a room of a couple hundred high schoolers lately. um, It was, it was also, it was just incredible. They were so hungry. And I even think the weight of this last year and a half, you know, we can all talk about that, but for our students, like for high school age kids that it's been really intense. And so their hunger for hope, um, we last, we wrapped up the last session just asking them to identify this big idea we had in the last session was when the pieces of life don't fit together, God can use your pain to position you for purpose, which Mm. I mean, is a huge part of my own story. So it was such an honor to teach that message, but we, we gave them the opportunity to name their pain and then really to turn it over to God and invite him to, you know, bring purpose from it. And the things that they submitted that they're navigating right now were just unreal. And so it was a powerful time to be with them and, kind of felt back like getting back to my roots, like being with high school students and, you know, yeah, awesome. I love how that's full circle. That was part of your calling into ministry and God's still keeping that passion alive. That's great. Yes, it's great. So um, as we think of the pieces of life, um, one of those pieces in your life currently is seminary. And I'm just wondering, you know, this conversation is part of a series where we're talking with women like you who are students at Northern. And what inspired your decision to attend seminary? Because you were already actively leading in ministry and then made that decision, right? So how did that happen? Yeah. um, I mean, honestly, so much of my journey has just been watching what God's doing and kind of saying yes to what he's leading. And um, I was active in ministry, leading a church at that time and getting just the opportunity to speak at different conferences and gatherings and churches. Frankly, I had a lot of friends that were like, hey, we've never had a woman teach here, but would you come teach? And that was this really weird thing God was doing. And, you know, my husband went to seminary so I could access his commentaries and his books. And But I felt like if I got formal training, my confidence in what I'm actually teaching would go up. My study time, maybe each message would go down. But I really felt the weight of I want to do justice to God's word and, and serve well with these opportunities. And so it was less like I want to further develop my career potential and more like for personal development. So seminary is what I do instead of watching Netflix right now, you know, like this yes. has been my free time. Good choice. Good um, choice. Yeah. And how I want to grow. And so it's been, it's been awesome. I actually, I'll just tell you quickly, I, I only had my associate's degree mm-hmm. and wanted to go, I thought just to Bible college, like I'll get some kind of basic education that will just equip me to do justice to these invitations. And I applied for a school and I was actually on the phone. I had missed the deadline by like three days to get into a class. And I'm thinking, surely you can like overcome that and get me in this class. So I call. And while I'm on the phone with the administration office, I got a message from Scott McKnight out of the blue saying, Carrie, you should go to seminary. I love that. Goosebumps now just, you know, saying it, but that, that was really how Northern came about for me also. 
That's great. Yeah. And I resonate with your story. I went to seminary for similar reasons. I was already in a pastoral role and I was having conversations with people who were from unchurched or dechurched backgrounds and they were asking big questions and I wanted to feel more equipped to have those conversations. And so I think that's a good encouragement to someone who's listening. Um, there are many students, I would say, in our cohort that are interested in academia. They're writing and um, already beginning to publish, but then there's some of us who wanted it to expand our knowledge and help us grow in ministry. And so there's a whole diverse group of us yeah. um, at Northern. So I think it's good to share that story because um, I can relate to it. I'm guessing some of our listeners can too. Mm -hmm. So what has um, surprised you or challenged you being in seminary so far? Because you're heading into your third year now, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it has felt like every single class has been a gift of surprise and delight just with what we're getting to learn. And uh, to your point, I think in this particular cultural moment, there's so much um, deconstruction around whether that's poor teaching or a poor hermeneutic or things that within application sort of went astray from what the Bible, I mean, even how we hold the Bible and what its intended purposes are, right? All of that stuff, I think, specifically our generation is, uh, my perception is when when somebody lets you down or when one thread of that gets pulled, it's sort of like the whole thing unravels. And so I feel like every class I have been in, it's equipped me to have skills to try to re-ravel re it or put the pieces back together or sit with people who are unsure and um, not always give them the right answers, but ask better questions. I think that's one of the things seminaries really equipped me to do is to ask better questions. Yeah, I love that. So let's take a moment and talk about being a woman in ministry. Um, I remember you saying once that because you didn't grow up in the church, you didn't necessarily have some of those paradigms of what a woman can or cannot do in ministry. In some ways, that's been a blessing in disguise because it's allowed you to take on big challenges. But it, you've also discovered that there can be some unspoken expectations that we as women can stumble into. So would you mind taking a moment just to share a bit of your story as a woman in ministry, maybe some of the challenges you've faced and then any specific challenges that you see women facing in ministry today? Sure. Uh, okay, this is a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that, you know, those young years um, in the business world really did set me up for ministry in ways I never could have imagined. I was 20 when I got the keys to this $5 million a year organization. I was young. I had mostly men that worked for me some twice my age. You know, there was um, a lot of challenge and obstacle I had to overcome at that time before getting into ministry. But as you said, my family, like we were in and out of church, but the, the gender norms and expectations were not a part of the family I grew up and were probably more implicit and not explicit in that church. So I will never forget the first time in ministry. I mean, I was called a pastor and they, the church that I was at hired someone to be on sort of the executive leadership team who was very traditional complementarian. And so I found out I was, I had to change my title and it was just this weird, like, what the, my job's not going to change. The expectations are going to change. Just the word, like it's going to go from, you know, pastor to director and, it was really odd and we were leaving that church at that time but go and, and that was already in play so it was like okay i'll do whatever you need to do i i hadn't spent much time on this topic and then we went to willow creek and you know they had a legacy of trying to empower women and so in a lot of ways my time there 
for the first probably seven years, I didn't, I didn't really realize I was a woman in ministry. You know, like I was a colleague, I was a peer with the people I worked with. Um, it wasn't until my last three years there, I worked for Bill. And so at that time there were some weird things that crept up, um, where it became evident that I was a woman. And eventually I said to my husband, like, I don't think that we see the the value that I add here the same way because there had been inappropriate comments and things like that. So, uh, I think I've seen maybe the gift of both sides. Like I've worked mm-hmm. on teams where I felt like a partner and an equal, and there were certainly challenges in that season. Um, just experiencing, you know, what we would call grooming um, and inappropriate behavior that eventually led to me leaving there. So those are some of the challenges in that specific environment, but even more broadly, I think we miss on a lot of the ways within the church that we take on ways men and women are cultured and socialized outside of the church. Like when Paul invites us to renew our minds, I think that means to put on brand new paradigms mm-hmm. and ideally kingdom paradigms about God's intention for the world. And I think that means we have to take captive in the ways that men are cultured to be a certain way and that women are cultured to be a certain way. So I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I don't feel shame very naturally. I remember asking a friend, like, what does that feel like? Because I don't, (laughs) but I've had to learn to pick up on those times when I violate people people's like social expectations of me, whether that's mm-hmm. leading in to have an answer or whether that's sharing an idea or, I mean, even teaching, you know, oftentimes that violates people's social expectations of women. So I think we have a lot of opportunity in the church to create the kind of culture that is a kingdom oriented culture that does actually model God's intentions for men and women. And I actually think in our generation, as broken as the relationships are between men and women in the world and the news and media, the gift of what's been revealed and illuminated these last few years. If we could get this right in the church, we could be so attractive to the watching world to actually model mutuality and what God's intentions for men and women are. I mean, that would be, you know, the most attractive community on the face of the planet if we could get this right. Yeah, absolutely. Carrie, I was wondering if you could fill out just a little bit. There's so much in that last comment. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you mean when you say grooming. I think some some might know and others might be not as familiar with that. Um, and also, I think um, you mentioned about the Enneagram, and I think I'm one of maybe two or three people that don't really know about that. Uh, sure. Serene's laughing because we've already had this conversation about <laughs> me not taking that test. I don't have a personality, so I'm not going to take a personality <laughs> test. Um, but anyway, um, but just kind of thinking about as you were describing that and about shame and about being aware of others, um, it, it made me think that, um, you know, how do women who have ideas and want to present them do so that's in a way that's faithful to them and hopefully helpful to others, but not necessarily be driven by someone else's need mm-hmm. for what that other person might think is socially acceptable. I know I've thrown kind of two big things at yeah. you, grooming and then just, yeah, h- h- how are you able to be true and authentic yourself and respectful of others? Yeah, so good. Okay. Uh, the grooming piece, I didn't really know what that was or what that word meant until um, when I transitioned out at Willow. I, it was after having like a uh, 
my husband and I moved to lead a church just outside of Cincinnati. And I actually stayed on doing contract work with them, helping them think through succession and leaders of the future. And um, during that time, I had an experience that was inappropriate with Heigl's where he made an inappropriate invitation. I said no to him. I came back from this trip going, okay, all this time that I worked for him, there were these weird things that had happened. Um, I can't just write them off. And for a long time I did. When I worked for him, I kind of rationalized or justified like, oh, he is a leader from a different generation. Maybe he thinks this is appropriate. Or, oh, he has a daughter just a couple years older than me. Maybe he thinks we're like closer, like family, closer than we are. Or um, so for years, I had kind of written these things off. I had talked to my husband about them. I had talked to a marriage mentor about them. And it wasn't until a counselor said, you can't just say you had some weird things. You've got to kind of inventory what those were. And after inventorying, you know, this long list of kind of inappropriate or weird or off type things, um, the counselor said, this is predatory grooming behavior. And so I had to do a lot of work to learn what what is that? What does that mean? And I think this is an interesting thing for the church in general to be learning, right? Um, it, it's really like a training for how someone wants to, how you want somebody to view you or experience you. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the last couple of years about like narcissism in the church, you know, and this is something oftentimes grooming has to do with knowing your vulnerabilities or your weak spots. Um, Wade Mullen is a great resource when it comes to this uh, impression management tactics and that type of stuff. But some people who groom are like gift givers. And so people have a hard time believing that they would misuse their power or abuse because they're just so generous to everybody. Or some of the grooming is like boundary testing. So when I worked for Hybels, he would send emails and sometimes he would put delete at the bottom. And that meant like I want to have an off the record conversation. And it was usually about work stuff or how somebody did at a meeting or, but it was just like, hey, will you keep my secrets is really what's underneath that. Will you engage in this? And so at the time I'm like, this guy's consulted with presidents. Maybe this is just par for the course working for him. It's weird, you know, but I didn't ever question he had ill intent at that time. So grooming is like those little subtleties over time that cause people to move their boundaries or to keep secrets or even to sometimes have loyalty. Um, and I think what's interesting when I step back from the Willow thing is I think everybody was groomed. I think Bill groomed different leaders in different ways. I think the congregation was groomed, right? To think we were the best church in the world or um, to see Bill in a certain way, to see the role of Willow in the broader church. All those things really are are grooming in terms of how they play out and what the purpose is of like the hyperbole or the encouragement or the challenge. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And so you came... Um, you you came out of that and you're thinking you know i actually i have i'm an authentic individual that has ideas and and i'm going to say those and you mentioned how um your your first instinct isn't to go to shame uh mm -hmm. and and so you but you needed to be conscious of that with others so how, how did that kind of other people reacting uh or either, I don't, I don't know, imputing shame to you or feeling shame themselves. I don't know. But anyway, if you want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. The, the part at Willow specifically or the part about in general. In general. Yeah. Um, I think for all of us, anybody who leads and especially in the church, if you're going to rise and fall on people's praise, the same is going to happen with your criticism, right? Like they're, 
um, I think we have to figure out what it means to be serving out of a place of obedience or faithfulness. And in some ways, that's the gift of my own journey. Like I never set out. I didn't feel the call in middle school to be a pastor. I never had that like burning bush moment. It was just one yes of obedience after the next. And so when I can know, like at the end of the day, I'm being faithful to what Christ is calling me to. Um, I'm not asking for these opportunities. Like I've never sought them out. This is just how God has orchestrated my path. I think those things help level the playing field. And it's great when you receive encouragement from somebody at the end of a message or, you know, at the end of a talk. And at the same time, there are often times that I receive criticism at the end or nearly every time I have been a guest teacher somewhere, I'll have somebody come up at the end and say, Hey, that was, that was good. Or that was this, but how do you justify what you do? And what they're asking is like, how can you as a woman either have the audacity or like, what's the theological gymnastics you've done to get that, you know, they're asking. And so I have also over time really had to learn if I get triggered in those moments or feel attacked or like I need to be defensive, I can't actually pastor somebody through that. But when I can hold tightly to, well, I'm just being faithful. I didn't seek this out. I'm just trying to be obedient. Here's what my journey was. Here are some resources. I actually love that you have a high value for what the Bible says. And I think studying what the Bible says in this topic is important. And here, you know, then I'm able to sit with them in their own pain or discomfort or challenge and not make it about me. But that, I mean, the, the root of all of that is at the core saying, okay, at the end of the day, I just want to be faithful. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So Carrie, as you describe these sort of interpersonal relationships and how we can communicate with one another and support one another, I know you have a passion for mentoring and coaching people in their calling. And so share with us a little bit of, of why you believe there's so much value there. Uh, why should we take time to share our experiences and help others grow? Yeah. Um, maybe this goes back to my wiring or me being an eight. I'm not sure, Lynn, but I, I truly think that the, the truth is one of the kindest forms of love we can give someone. And my own experience within the ministry world is, you know, most leaders or at least senior leaders don't have many people telling them the truth and or holding up a mirror or um, I don't I don't think it's intentional that we have yes people around those tables, but often that's what happens, right? Like spiritual influence is really different than even just authority as your boss or as your parent. And so my coaching work started with people would call, you know, at Willow and say, hey, what do you do this? How do you do this? What what happens over in this ministry? And I would have those conversations. And then I would say at the end of it, like, this isn't your community. It's not your context. It's not your vision. What, what would it look like for you to get that clear where you're called to serve. And so they would say, great, can you come help me do that? So it, I never really even set out to do that coaching work, but loved getting to sit in that sort of holy space with people where you're asking them questions. Uh, there's this term called hema blind. It's a Swedish word that means blind to the things at home. So that's like your son broke the window with a baseball three months ago and you know it needs to be fixed and the window's cracked, but you just stop seeing it over time, right? And I think many of us, that's the case within our organizations, within our churches, there can be things we are unintentionally perpetuating or things we miss. And so the coaching work has been going in and helping churches or denominations or leaders get feedback, get clear about who God's calling them to be or what this next season of ministry looks like for them and then trying to align you know, around those things. Sometimes that's change management. Sometimes it's like 
dreaming and vision about the next season. Um, it looks really different with each client. But I think coaching work, if you don't have someone who's coaching you and giving you feedback, usually when they don't have skin in the game, right? Like it can be hard when your boss is your coach because they're also thinking about the organization and your job. Or, so just having somebody in your corner that's going to hold you accountable and challenge and ask good questions, I think is priceless for all of us in different seasons of life. That's so good. You know, I've I've found myself in in situations in the past where I was craving feedback. I wanted someone to give me honest truth, as you pointed out, and to be given opportunities to grow. Um, but I think sometimes that can be challenging. I don't know if that's always uh, particular to being a woman in ministry, but it seems like that definitely plays a factor in, in getting that true, honest feedback. So how do you think, uh, a couple of questions here, how can we as women do this for one another? And then earlier you were talking about serving alongside each other, mutuality, uh, men and women together. So then how can men come alongside and champion women in their calling? Yes. Oh, these are really good questions. Um, I think that that's one of the gaps. Like if you just step back and look at, okay, women that feel called to serve in leadership roles or as teachers, if there are not other, many other women doing that, then that's going to require men to fill in the gap of mentorship and development, right? And so I think even our well-intentioned things like the Billy Graham rule have really set this back. Men and women being able to serve together, being able to partner in ministry. If, if any of the guys on my team can go have lunch with the boss and get that mentorship or that feedback or that coaching and women can't, that's automatically an obstacle. And I actually, my personal conviction is that if we think men and women having relationship and friendship is that dangerous, like we have to get to the root of how we see one another. Because if I actually see you as my brother or my sister, I'm not going to be able to objectify you. If I don't see you as a sex object, if I don't see you, like if I see you as somebody who is my family, it also, it almost becomes impossible for those things to take root. So I think we've got some work to do to get to the core of that relationship between men and women. But most often with feedback, I find I have to ask. Right. And sometimes there are people that want to give me feedback that I'm like, I don't know if I will if your feedback carries as much weight as it would from this other person. So I have found just asking and sometimes depending on the person, they can be shy about that, but like, Hey, give me one or two things I can work on. You know, maybe they don't want to give you overarching feedback, but can give you real clear kind of next steps or things to receive. Um, that's been huge in my own kind of personal journey. And that's from men and women. Uh, so I think asking for it, if you really want it. And there are sometimes I don't want it, <laughs> you know, like I don't go seek it out every time, but, um, but I, I want, I want that. And I want to ask other people for that. Uh, did that answer your question about feedback? Totally. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Carrie. Mm -hmm. So clearly you're a gifted communicator. I know you wouldn't come on here and say this, but you are asked to speak and communicate because people see that gift in you. And so what would you say to a woman who feels like God's given her a message um, or a story to share? How do you um, think she can begin finding her voice? Mm, yeah. Um, oh, that's so, I mean, finding your voice in general as a woman, right? I think um, I know some of the research shows that a woman's self-confidence peaks at nine years old. I don't know if you've read this. Well, wow. nine years old is the age that you go between like concrete and abstract thinking. It's the age that you realize all of the expectations the world puts on women and that you realize like you really can't um, meet all of those. Like it's actually impossible. And that's why a woman's self-confidence 
plummets at that age. It's the highest it will ever be at nine. So I think we got we to gotta change that, Carrie. We have got to yeah. change that. That is, I did not know that. And you saying it, it I can in a way believe it. Remember that uh, ad, run like a girl, mm. you know, and the mm -hmm. girls younger than nine were all just running, pumping their arms, looking great. And then older than that, as teenagers, there was uh, affectations that entered into uh, their stride. And that self-consciousness that um, oh, just can plague us. But wow, I mean, we got to change that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And when you really start to peel back the layers of like all of the reasons why, right? Because that's what we see in the media and in commercials. It's the unintended expectations that we put on women. I mean, that's already when they're being asked, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Can you work outside of the home or are you supposed to stay home? There's all sorts of things underneath that that are questions. I even... You know, I just listened to this podcast where James Dobson was talking about a woman smiling in a car next to him and it was flirtatious. And all I could think about the whole time was how often women are told to smile. So it's like, well, if you do smile, you're flirting with this man in your car because he basically says in the in the podcast, like he he didn't pull off on the side of the road. He passed the test or something like that, that you're like, wait a minute, her smiling was a trap. But Women are told to smile. Like it was just some microcosm of all the ways that women get these double messages. And so it really feels like you can't win. Like that's kind of the core of it is that. Exactly. Exactly. You're never going to meet all win. those expectations. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then it's always your fault. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So totally. that that adds, uh, yeah. adds a lot of pressure or shame, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. yeah. One of the things um, this woman, uh, Ellen Duffield, wrote a book called Brave Women, and some of the research I'm quoting comes from her. But one of the things that she says is because of how women are socialized in leadership contexts or settings, most often women need to be asked. So if you're in a boardroom having a meeting, usually men will right away speak up and add their feedback or their input. And women are conditioned not to do that, right? We're conditioned not to rock the boat or not to speak up or to play small or to be small or to kind of keep every, make sure everything's okay, right? Like you got, it's your job emotionally or um, domestically in the home or whatever that is to kind of make sure everything's okay. So it's, it, the number of social expectations women would have to violate to speak up in a board meeting or to speak up in that room, that's why oftentimes women have to be asked. But when they are asked, that helps calibrate with their voices. Or when they do throw out an idea and the idea takes, or they do have a solution, um, I think that's slowly over time how we're able, that was my own journey, being able to calibrate over time to speak up at a leadership team meeting at Willow and give feedback or give input and to have somebody say, oh yeah, that, that is a really good idea. We should do that or whatever it is, it, it like your own internal. So I look for and, ways now for my daughter. Go ahead. Absolutely. And I think some of it uh, to piggyback on that is I think women are also conditioned to always be right. Because mm -hmm. if you're wrong, well, then you're just a stupid woman. If a man mm -hmm. is wrong, and I've taught undergrads for a long time. <laughs> so yeah. I, I see the differences in the 18 to 22 year olds. And, you know, women, I, I just conditioned that if you're going to say something, it's got to be right, because otherwise, you know, you're just the stereotype, dumb blonde or goofy or whatever. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of men who say things that I think, yeah, you know, that, that really wasn't helpful or essential or meaningful or worthwhile or, you know, pick your adjective. But it doesn't seem to bother anybody in the room. They didn't just suddenly fail the whole uh 
masculine or the whole male part of our human race. Whereas women, we stand like for everyone, you know, right. if we mess up, or at least that's what we're kind of told. So I think women don't step in right away. And I, a couple of times in, in my classes as undergrad classes, um, I've just said to the students after we've gotten to know each other for a while, a couple of weeks in to say, okay, guys, because usually in my area, there'd be like 25% of the class would be women and 75% men. And I'd say, now, guys, I, I, all of you all, I want you to just to notice that uh, about um, the last five questions that I've asked have all been answered by men. So what we're going to do is uh, a man can answer two times, and then we're going to have to wait. The third question will have to, the first answer will have to come from a woman. And they kind of liked that. But they also realized, wow, yeah, the, the young men in the class realized, I just jump in. I am not conscious of the fact that there are women who are thinking about the answer, but I, I don't, culturally, I, ju I, just does, I just don't think about it. I just jump in. And uh, they, they appreciated having a mirror put up to how we're, how we're talking. The same thing can happen in a church meeting, in any kind of small group. You know, you just have to be kind of intentional about it. Yeah, totally. We have these conversations. My daughter just finished sixth grade this last year, and she noticed, Mom, when our teacher asked the question, all of the boys shout out and all the girls raise their hand. Sixth grade. Wow. And she's wow. noticing this already. So, mm. and you know, you look at all the statistics about like a, a man will apply for a job if he has 60 to 70% of the qualifications, a woman won't if she, unless she has 100. So, just like you're saying, there's this conditioned sort of way that we need to have it all thought through or figured out or be right. And both of those things, and I don't, I'm not like being angry at men for doing that. They're cultured in that way, right? To just speak out or to just, so we, we have work to do on both sides, but I think in the church, there's so much opportunity for us to do better and to model for the watching world, like, oh, women have value. Like that's a space, women's ideas are invited. That's a space when a woman speaks up, she's honored. That's a space that women aren't objectified or that men couldn't fathom looking at pornography because they couldn't even imagine being turned on by the objectification of a woman because that's their sister. Like that's a place that men and women get to model the character of God and how they serve one another. Like, there, there's so much potential if we can get this right in the church for the watching world to just be drawn to the character and nature of who God is. Yeah, Carrie, that's awesome. And you know, as you were talking about the watching world, I was just thinking about social media. Um, there's a huge watching world out there on social media, and it's definitely a place uh, that can be intimidating to raise our voice. Um, it's a powerful form of communication though. And I've been inspired recently by your use of social media to share some challenging messages and invite conversation. And I'm wondering, how do you see social media as a place for us to engage with people that think differently from us? And do you think it can be a place of ministry? Oh, um, man, social media sometimes feels like a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but that's my hope. I mean, my hope is that any place that we're invited to add to the conversation as Christ followers, that we would figure out a way to do it that's redemptive. So um, there are times, I mean, sometimes I post just, you know, pictures of something silly or something ridiculous, but there have certainly been times that I felt just kind of a prompting from the Holy Spirit to share something, sometimes that I didn't want to. 
uh, probably like a year and a half ago when John MacArthur told Beth Moore to go home. I had a really interesting conversation with a male colleague on the heels of that, where I essentially said like, I'm just so glad he said it out loud, right? Like people are thinking this every time I'm in a room, I can tell who won't give me eye contact or whose body language is like, why do we have a woman? Or, And he was like, every time? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, every time, even in my own church, like I could feel when those things happen. And he was shocked that this was something that women are aware of. And so we had this conversation. It was an awesome conversation. And I really felt prompted to share about this on social media. And I'm like, no, Lord, this is, it's embarrassing. I don't want to be vulnerable. I, I want to be strong. I don't want people to know we face that stuff, you know, whatever. But I, it like wouldn't go away. And so I ended up sharing just about this conversation and how healing and redemptive that one experience with the male colleague was. And I got so much feedback from people like, oh, I'm so glad you said that or you named that or from it that were like, oh, I never would have known. I learned from that experience. I, so I, I think sometimes it's just being obedient to a prompting or a stirring from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it really is like, there's so much ugliness out there. And when we have those beautiful moments or those positive experiences or, you know, seeing God work around us, like to share that, I do think is really compelling. And I hear from people who've stopped going to church or who aren't Christ followers, but who have found hope or have been compelled by sharing sometimes stories of what God's doing. So I hope that for all of us, it can be a place that ministry can happen and that we can bring God glory, even if it's in the parts of our story or our lives that we don't, you know, want to share. Mm. I think that's such a great challenge because social media can feel like a dumpster fire, as you put it, and very intimidating for some of us. So such a good like reminder and challenge. Um, as we wrap up today, um, you shared with me during 2020 as we were all feeling the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which we still are at this point, um, you felt compelled that walking through a wilderness sometimes is we can get focused on celebrating what's gonna happen when we come out of the wilderness season. Um, but you felt really compelled uh, to speak to the fact that God often has something to teach us in the wilderness season. And I'm someone who has experienced some heavy wilderness seasons in my life, and I know you have as well. And so I'm wondering, as someone who might be listening today, maybe they're walking through a wilderness season, do you have any words of encouragement that you would leave them with? Yeah, um, this kind of idea for me really just sparked when we kept kind of talking about the promised land on the other side of the wilderness, like in the church, in, in the midst of the pandemic, and somebody actually at seminary, in a class a couple of semesters ago said, you know, I wonder in America, if we think that the Israelites were like at their best, most successful in the temple era when they were prominent and they had resources. And he said, I think the American church gets that wrong because I wonder if, if the Israelites were actually sort of at their best when they were wandering in the wilderness, but they were being led by God's presence. And that was this really powerful, I mean, so much of my learning comes from other students as much as it does the incredible process seminary. And that just stuck with me. And I think for each of us, you know, the Israelites experienced God's presence in ways they never could have in the promised land when they were wandering through the desert, that he literally led them by day and by night. 
he provided for them. I think if you're in the midst of a wilderness season right now, to be able to look around, even if it's like it's hot outside and there's a breeze going through the trees, right? Like the ways that God provides for us or the manna, the food that was just waiting for them every single day. Um, and I think his promises, like that's where he was forming them as his people. And he was saying, here's a law, not because law is what we should live by, but here are the values of my kingdom. You know, here are the things that are most important. I think the wilderness of this pandemic season has been so illuminating for us. I don't think many of the things that have been revealed are new, whether that's marriage struggles or addiction tendencies or issues with your family or discontentedness at work, whatever those things are, I think they all existed before. They've just been partially illuminated. And so I think in the midst of that, there's an invitation for us to say, do does my life actually match what I would say my values are? Am I really living the way and building the life that I feel like that's called me to live? And so um, in my own experience, when I look back on wilderness seasons, I see that God's presence was most profound in those moments. So anybody navigating wilderness season, I would say God's word says he's near to the brokenhearted, like Psalm 34, 18, right? And, and I think that's true. And so opening yourself up in desperation, I think we miss this sometimes in the church. Like you can cry, you can yell out. Sometimes I use language that would probably offend people in my conversations and in my prayers with God. But when we can be real and go to the healer, he meets us in the midst of our wounds in the most profound ways. So I would just say, cry out to him, seek him and you'll find him. Yes, amen. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Carrie. I hope that um, it's been encouraging to our listeners. It's been wonderful getting to talk with you. And I think we're going to leave it with that word of encouragement to our listeners today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for what you both do. Thanks, Carrie. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast, and today has been a special conversation with Carrie Latticer, a Northern Seminary student. And if you've enjoyed hearing from her, go find her on social media, or you can find her pastoring over at Community Christian Church in Naperville if you are local to the Chicagoland area. If you've been inspired to learn more about being a student at Northern Seminary, you can find out more at seminary.edu. We'd love to share with you uh, this experience, being part of a cohort and learning together. And we hope that you'll join us back here again next week for another episode as we continue our conversation on issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry.